We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Well, good evening. It's truly a joy to be here with you guys this evening. I've looked forward to this night with uh, anticipation and uh, a lot of excitement. I don't get a chance to preach a whole lot, and when I do, I'm uh, kind of a bundle of nerves, but also just excited to uh, get to share God's Word. Um, Aubrey and I exchanged a bunch of emails back and forth in the weeks leading up to me speaking. We actually decided I was going to do this quite a while ago. But I didn't really know I was just going to be preaching. In the, in the interim, he asked me to uh, lead the Nicene Creed, uh, to lead up the Eucharist, and uh, several other things. And so I've gained a whole new meaning for all things new. Uh, I have, I'm actually more nervous about the post-sermon than I am about this. Um, but uh, it was also interesting. He um, asked me if I'd consider speaking from some of the assigned readings. And uh, I was a little bit reluctant about that as well. I had you know, I preach so little, I have a couple of themes that I like to talk on, and so I had one in mind. And um, But I said, you know, I'll go ahead and do that, and I'll go ahead and uh, take a look at the assigned readings. And so he sent those to me, and as God would have it, the gospel text was the, one of the primary uh, texts I was going to use anyway. So God is good, and uh, I'm really hopeful that um, he'll speak to me tonight, a, weir- a word for all of us. So if you will, just bow your heads with me. I want to pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll spend some time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are the King, um, and that, Lord, you left the heavenly comfort of all your glory and came to this sin-stained world on our behalf, Lord, uh, left all of that comfort and uh, glory for wretches like us, Lord, and it is just a marvelous thing. And God, we quiet our hearts tonight. I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that, Lord, you would... Uh, Speak through me, O Lord, and if there's anything that is useful for us tonight, that it would stick. And God, if there is anything for us that is of no value, Lord, that it would just fall away. We thank you that, Lord, you are the King and Lord of our salvation. And so, Lord, I commit this time to you and all that's in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Sarah and I worship at uh, Church of the Reconciler, which is a charismatic Episcopal church in Fairfield, have been there for a while. And um, we're still growing in the liturgical calendar and and learning... um, more and more about the Book of Common Prayer and about special holy days. And I had no idea that this Sunday was Christ the King Sunday. And so I had to do a little bit of homework on my own. Uh, But the actual Christ the King Sunday was actually founded in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. And uh, he did this at a time when Benito Mussolini was coming to power in Italy. And he really wanted to drive the people's hearts and attention and affection to the fact that Christ was their salvation, that Christ was their hope and in him they would find what they needed, and not to put their trust in any political figure. But he had two major points that he wanted to uh, make the people aware of within the Roman church. And one of those things was, and it's very simple, is that the Lord is king over all of creation. Uh, I think that's something that all of us would agree to this evening. But it's something that, at least for myself, I'm quick to forget, that Christ is not only king of my life, king of the church, but king over all of creation itself. And he has shown this throughout the Gospels. Uh, We don't have to flip far to see how he calmed storms themselves by simply telling them to be quiet and to go away. Uh, He defied the laws of science by walking on liquid, walking on water itself. Uh, When people were sick, there were those with shriveled hands, with leprosy, with various other ailments. He was able to fix those things and to overturn biology itself. 
And so he demonstrates again and again that he's Lord over the natural order. It's even interesting, I was reading a commentary about a year ago, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Mark gives a quick summary of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And he says there that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And he says, and he was with the wild beasts. And it says, and the angels ministered to him. Now, I've read that countless times, but this particular commentator wanted to draw my attention to that phrase, with wild beasts. And in the Greek, it means close proximity to, just like I'm in close proximity to you this evening. But wild beasts were flesh-eating predators, bears, uh, mountain lions, wolves, and other things that would ordinarily attack a man who's out in the wilderness by himself. And I wouldn't die for what this commentator was saying, but he said he believes it was an illustration from Isaiah chapter 11, where it talks about the child will lead them in. And it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child will put his hand over the adder's nest and will not be bitten. And it talks about the bear eating grass like a cow. And it's really a demonstration, this commentator was saying, that when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was demonstrating the peace and shalom that he was going to bring to creation itself, that those wild beasts were likely at his feet or around him in a very peaceful place, that he was ruling over them, demonstrating what it was going to be like when he created a new earth and a new heaven. It's a beautiful picture. But beyond that, Jesus, as he rules over creation, has also rules over the demonic spirits, which are also created things. He defeated Satan ultimately when he rose from the grave. But even in the wilderness, in that same passage, he's tempted by Satan three times, and he triumphs over him. Later in that same chapter, Mark chapter 1, he drives out a demonic spirit. And so he's showing his kingship. He's showing his dominion over all of creation. But not only does he show dominion over creation and over the demonic spirits and over uh, angels themselves, but he has triumphed over our sin by bringing unto us salvation. And in a moment, I'm going to dive into our text for the evening. But one of my favorite statements, I believe, was a declaration of Jesus' kingship as the first sermon that he preached in Luke chapter 4, uh, when he shows up in the synagogue and he opens the scroll and reads from Isaiah. And he says, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to restore sight to the blind, to set free the captives, and to proclaim liberty to those that are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Jesus came to overcome sin, but not just sin, but the effects of sin, which we see in the form of poverty, which we see in the forms of economic decay, which we see in the form of the breakdown of the family. Jesus came to proclaim liberty and uh, to, to kingship even over those very things. As we look at our passage tonight in Matthew chapter 25, it's a passage that continues to disturb me uh, every time I read it because there's a sense of finality to it. Jesus is returning, and it says he's coming with all of his angels, and he's going to be seated on a throne. It says the nations are gathered unto him, and Jesus is a savior judge. And in this passage, he's returning as a judge. He's sitting down in a place of rulership, in a place of dominion. And he's gathering onto him all the people and says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He is going to rule as a judge. And it says he will recognize us by how closely our lives of grace and mercy match his own. He will assess our individual lives on how closely 
they emulated what he was doing when he was on earth. How closely these lives were proclaiming good news to the poor. How closely these lives were restoring sight to the blind. How closely these lives were liberating those who are captive and proclaiming liberty to those that were oppressed. And it's a sobering passage that this is a final division. Those that he welcomes as his sheep, it says, he welcomes them unto eternal life. And those that were not participating in these particular activities of ministering to the least of these, it says they are sent away to eternal punishment. And he says throughout this passage several times that this is what the righteous do. The righteous clothe the naked. The righteous feed uh, the hungry. They visit the oppressed. They minister to the quote-unquote least of these. And I stumble over this passage sometimes, and maybe you do, because it sounds to me to a certain extent that there's a works-oriented salvation that's being drawn out of this passage. Uh, But this is a direct corollary. James, I should say, builds off of this passage in James chapter 2 when he talks about a workless faith being nothing or being useless. See, we are not declared righteous because we do these things, but because we are righteous, we do these things. Jesus has declared us righteous by his death for us on the cross, and that is it. It's finished in that sense. But the righteous ones are going to do these things. And when Jesus returns, he longs to see his bride doing these things. And so in that sense, it does cause me to give pause this evening and to look into my own life and to say, if Christ were to return sometime soon, what would he find me doing? Who would he find me engaged with? What type of fruit would he see in my life? Would I be ministering to these least of these? I know that Christ is my Savior, and I know that I am saved. My confidence is not shaken in that place. And for you, I hope it's the same tonight. But I want to draw our attention, if I can, and change gears into, into looking a little bit at the American church and perhaps how we have sidestepped this responsibility or sidestepped this role of following Christ as King, of submitting to His dominion, and of bringing the good news to the least of these. As Americans, I think we view Christ and have difficulty viewing Christ as a King, Uh, I've lived in a democracy all of my life, in a place where I feel like I have a vote, where I have an opinion, where I even have autonomy over my own story, and I can decide what I want to do or not to do with my life. And I spent a good bit of my life under that supposition that I could do what I wanted to do with my life, unaware of the fact that the King, the one I declare as my Lord and Savior, has already made it clear what I'm supposed to do with my life. And if He is going to be my King, I have no choice in the matter. The king is not interested in my opinion or my vote. He's made it clear that as my Lord and as my Savior, I'm supposed to do as he did. Do we understand that as Americans tonight? The whole idea of a king sounds good, but the concept of it when the rubber meets the road is a bit foreign to us, I think, that we would still like to approach this Lord and Savior on our own terms and perhaps set out on a destiny for ourselves. I recently heard I was at a philanthropic breakfast where Restoration Academy was invited, and there was also a member from the United Way that was there. And the United Way representative stood up and said, I really want to congratulate all of you here. He said, you may not know this, but the city of Birmingham is the most philanthropic giving large city in the United States of America per capita. And he said, you guys have held that title for several years running. Uh, You are just a giving city. And in one sense, I kind of 
you know, let my chest puff up for a minute. I'm from Birmingham, and that sounded very good. But then I began to think to myself, but it's kind of funny, Birmingham's still one of the most segregated cities, not just racially, but between the haves and the have-nots. Educationally, we're second from the bottom as a state in the entire country. And there's all kinds of issues that I could go on and on and on again. So is our philanthropy and our giving really doing anything at the end of the day? Is that really something that I can pat myself on the back and say that, well done? As Americans, I think we're in a unique position that we're allowed to give of our excess. When we look at the least of these, we are able to actually cut a check and try to alleviate the suffering of certain groups of people. Or perhaps we sometimes can take garbage bags full of clothing and shoes and different things and send them to particular places and call that ministry. Because we have so much. I have so much. If you're going to go to the third world country, I know many of you have been to third world countries, what do those people really have to give at the end of the day outside of their own physical bodies? Nothing. All they can give, the most precious gift that they can give is their, the, the sweat of their brow or the work of their own two hands. That's all that they have to give. Shane Claiborne has a quote that touches on this passage in Matthew 25. Perhaps you've read his book, The Irresistible Revolution. He's an interesting guy, a little bit controversial, but I love this quote. He says, I'm just not convinced that Jesus is going to say, when I was hungry, you gave a check to the United Way and they fed me. Or when I was naked, you donated clothes to the Salvation Army and they clothed me. That cuts pretty deep. Um, yeah, I don't think Jesus is going to say that. In Ezekiel 16, God is lambasting his people for their sins and comparing their sins to the sins of Sodom. And he says to them, your sins are even worse. And he says uh, the five major sins of Sodom were, one of them was the moral abominations that we're all aware of from Genesis. He says, but the others were pride, leisure, an excess of possessions. And he says, the fourth one, he says, was a refusal to help the poor. And when I read that, at first I, saw, I thought, well, what is refusal to help the poor? They just must have been really stingy people. They must have just really kind of hidden themselves from the poor uh, and not even given of their, their excess or given of anything they have. Well, the actual Hebrew of to help means to grasp the hand of. It's a physical touch of actually grasping the hand of a poor person and helping them. And he says, you did not even do that, and your sins were even worse. But as we look at Matthew chapter 25 and helping the least of these, when Jesus says, you've done all of these things, I believe it's physical contact. It's being in proximity to, it's actually using your physical bodies to minister to these quote-unquote least of these. I was a history major at Wheaton, and uh, I've forgotten most of everything I studied because I don't teach as much anymore. But in 1863... During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln and the United States Congress passed a very interesting piece of legislation. The Union troops had been suffering uh, several major battles, and the romanticism of joining the war just because that was a good thing to do was waning, and people were really no longer enlisting in the war. So Lincoln began to have a bit of a panic, as did Congress, and said, where are we going to get more men? And they, they established the Conscription Act. And basically, it was the United States' first draft where men were actually compelled to go and fight. 
But interestingly, there was one little clause in this piece of legislation that if you had $300, you could send someone in your stead. And that person would go in your replacement. And they would, it was still considered a patriotic thing to do because a body was still going to fight for the northern cause. As I researched this more and more, by the end of the war, over 120,000 men were conscripted in through cash payments, most of them poor immigrants, the first to get off the boats. They got off the boats. Most of them didn't speak English. Most of them had zero conflict with the North or the South, and they were handed a blue uniform and a gun and shipped South to go fight a battle that was none of their business. Um, and again, perhaps I, I don't want to step too hard on toes, but I may not be invited back. This is my one chance. But I think we sometimes take on missions that way, um, that for a certain amount of money we can send somebody in our stead, and we call that ministry or we call that missions. I don't think that that's what Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 25. And again, in this country, we have the luxury and the ability to do that. And it's essential. Restoration Academy is funded by the generous giving of people. Uh, Compassion International and many other missions and ministries require financial donations, and it's essential. But I believe that there's an interesting sidestep that we can take in our American Christianity where we somehow either send someone or something in our stead and we call that ministry. And when Christ returns, we expect to be able to look him in the eye and say, I ministered to the least of these. And what if Christ says, do you know any of them by name? Do you know their stories? Were you in their homes? Did you walk along their streets? Um, Are we going to be able to do that? My concern is that I believe that our, the American church is growing increasingly irrelevant um, and that the pagan world is growing increasingly cynical about us as a body of Christ. And they're losing any kind of conviction that Christ is the king he said he was. A survey was recently taken in New York City where they were asked, would you rather live next to someone who was dealing narcotics or would you rather live next to a Christian? And an overwhelming amount of people said they would prefer to live next to the person that was dealing narcotics. Not because of uh, their uh, anything that was associated with Christ, but because they were tired of Christians telling them how to live, what to do with their moral choices, but doing absolutely nothing to impact their city. I met a man about a year and a half ago who came to Restoration Academy looking for a job. And he said, um, you know, he's a, he was a, had written several books, was master degreed. And Carl Lynn, my boss, and I were sitting talking to him and saying, you know, where are you in church? And he ducked his head and said, I'm not in church anymore. And we said, well, why? What, what's going on? He said, well, he said, I went to church in Birmingham at a church over the mountain. He said, a large church. He said, but uh, as long as I was there, they lived and acted as if there wasn't suffering going on just miles down the road. And he said, I have not been able to reconcile the hypocrisy. And he said, so I no longer am in attendance. A sad choice on his part, but I think uh, indicative of the where many people are as they begin to look at the bride of Christ. Jesus, when he came into that synagogue a long time ago and left us with those words of what he came to do, has called us as his bride to do the same, to submit ourselves to his kingship. And part of that is to be his hands and feet in poor, dying, uh, and depraved places and to put our physical bodies there. My desire is that I will be counted uh, among those blessed sheep when he returns. I think Jesus wants to find his church waist deep in what he was doing when he left. 
and that was leaving all of the comforts of, of our life. He left the comforts of heaven to plunge into a dirty, sinful, dying world, and he's called us to do the same. For each of us tonight, that looks probably very different. Uh, but my hope for us is that as we contemplate this Christ the King Sunday, that we, one, remind ourselves that he is truly over all of creation. He is a wonderful, majestic, awesome, and incredible God. But like any king, he's left us with some battle instructions. He's left us with a plan. He's, he's left us with a pattern in his own life. And he was deeply devoted to not only those who were in bondage to just sin, meaning that their souls were lost, but to those who found themselves in a socioeconomic place of poverty and brokenness. And he's called us to somehow address those needs. And it's becoming increasingly difficult, I think, for us to do that unless we make some intentional choices um, with our time and with our talent, with our physical bodies and where we put them. And so, I, you know, I don't, uh, as, we, as, we, as we close here in just a moment, my prayer for us is that we, uh, on this day, even maybe before the night is done, take some time in our own heart to say, Lord, where would you have me to put my physical body to, to minister to these least of these, to bring water to the thirsty, to bring bread to the hungry, to visit those who are in bondage, to clothe the naked. Don't just give me a plan to send something, but I want to do it myself. I want to be your hands and feet in this world. If we haven't done that, and listen, I've, I work at Restoration Academy, but mentally and spiritually I find myself very far from the people I work with sometimes just because my heart is cold. Uh, may we, if we find ourselves in that place, uh, repent. Um, but uh, may we also hear the, the, the beloved uh, cry of our King that he's there with us and he invites us to that place, and it's a wonderful place to be. Let me close us in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your word, and thank you, Lord, that uh, your love is better than life, and that, Lord, we can glorify you tonight. Lord, thank you that you have already counted us among the sheep, and that, Lord, when we were wandering and wayward and even lost on our own sin, you sent your Son uh, as a king. Uh, a suffering king, to die on our behalf and to point us on a better way. Lord, may we continue to press into that kingdom, dying to ourselves, to our own plans, to our own desires, Lord, and ultimately, uh, recklessly uh, pursuing you and your plans for us, O oh God. And Lord, if we have failed, Lord, may we just hear the words that, Lord, you have forgiven us and that you are with us and that you will continue to draw us after you. And Lord, for those who have already plunged deep, continue to encourage and strengthen their arms and hands and minds and hearts. We thank you for this night, Lord, and we commit all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.